Good to see you guys. So we have to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 again. We're not done yet. You know that, right? Uh, as you're turning, I have an article I want to just kind of read to you as a bit of an introduction to where we're going to eventually go um, after a, some introductory words, uh, remarks or some review, I should say, from what we've covered so far. Um, this is an article entitled, Receive Your Healing by Faith, What It Is and How to Do It. Part one. There's, there's a follow-up part two article that I'm not going to read today, but this is just part one. Uh, this was written by Gloria Copeland. Uh, this is the wife of Kenneth Copeland, and if you're familiar with Kenneth Copeland, it's sort of the word faith... Uh, uh, wing, if you will, of, of some of the more uh, excessive charismatic circles. I'm not reading this to just be provocative and just to hold up extreme examples. It does tie into uh, where we're going to go today in, in, a, in a significant way. But just kind of listen to how this, uh, this, the, this concept or these ideas about faith and healing are communicated in this article. Today, I want to talk to you about a topic that is very close to my heart, receiving your healing by faith. Those words sound foreign to many people. Some have never heard the phrase before. Others assume that those of us who use it are just trying to get their money or living in denial. But I know differently. I know because I've lived by this principle for more than 45 years. Ken and I are doing everything in our power to teach others... I would agree with that, everything in their power, to teach others how to do it. We want people to know that regardless of your illness, mental or physical, regardless of your diagnosis, regardless of your family history, regardless of your lab results, you can receive your healing by faith. I'm going to teach you what it means and how to do it. I just want to stop right there and, and just remark for a moment on the, the definitive boldness with which this kind of teaching tends to embody. Not to mention the, the detachment from clear biblical instruction, but, but she's, she's going to teach us how to do it. So um, what, it, what does it mean to receive your healing by faith? You don't owe anything. Your bill has already been paid. Sometimes Ken and I hear those words in a restaurant when we start to pay for our meal. Usually it's because one of our partners was there and decided to bless us. That's such a nice feeling. It always touches our hearts. When I think about what Jesus did for us when he gave his life on the cross, I'm reminded of those times and I realize God said those same wonderful words to us. You don't owe anything. Your bill has already been paid. Without our asking him to do it, while we were still living in sin and rebellion, Jesus paid the price for our forgiveness. With his own blood, he paid the debt we owed to God for every sinful thing we have ever done or will ever do. He set us free from sin, sickness, and pain. He paid the bill so we can be whole, spirit, soul, and body. So there is an interweaving of sound biblical doctrine in and through this, as you can tell. 
Isaiah 53, 4-5 says it this way. Surely he has borne our griefs. And in parentheses, she puts sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses. And carried our sorrows and pains of punishment, in parentheses. Yet we, in parentheses, ignorantly, considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The chastisement of peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. The last phrase of that verse means a great deal to me. I love the fact that it says, we are healed and made whole. It doesn't say that one day we will be healed and made whole. It doesn't say that possibly if it's the will of the Lord, we might be healed and made whole. It says we already are. If you have sickness in your body today, you might be tempted to argue with me about that. You might say, hey, I'm hurting right now. I've been to the doctor and he says I'm sick. I even have x-rays to prove it. How can you say I'm healed? I'm not the one saying it. God is the one who said it in his word. I'm just quoting him. He's given us the good news that the price for sickness, which entered the world through sin, has been paid. So if you've given your heart to Jesus, you don't have to pay the price of sickness anymore. Your healing has already been provided. You can simply receive it by faith and go. Now, in case you want to move forward in this study, I'll go ahead and give you the last paragraph of this. In part two of this series, I'm going to teach you how to receive your healing by faith. You can be healed from heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, thyroid disorders, depression, bipolar disorder, autoimmune disease, irritable bowel disorder, cancer, or any other disease the enemy has put on you. In fact, by faith, you already have been. The reason why I read that article is to just drive home the point that anytime anyone approaches the scriptures in a way that is driven toward some kind of self-aggrandizement, some kind of self-preservation in this life, in this world that is passing away, it will take you to all kinds of extremes in terms of interpretation and application of biblical passages. I mean, some of the irony of all this is that it's my understanding that Kenneth Copeland has a pacemaker, that he, has, he gets treated for some kind of you know, chronic ailment. And I mean, they're doing, they're, they're, what's happening to them is happening to all of us. I mean, you know, I don't know how many different sort of cosmetic surgeries are in their future, but I can just tell you that, that whatever's underneath all of that, they're, they're, they're turning to dust before everyone's eyes. And their bodies are failing them. I'm confident of that. As confident as she seems to be in the fact that we can claim our actual, in this life, full physical healing, I'm confident that you can't stave off the curse. And so it's incumbent upon us, as we continue to examine the, the Apostle Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 
in this matter of spiritual gifts in the life of the church, it's incumbent upon us that we do this carefully and thoughtfully. We want to be able to both think rightly about the nature and reason and purpose and distribution and use of spiritual gifts in the life of the church for the building up of the body. We want to be faithful in the use of whatever gifts God has given us to that same end. And so it's incumbent upon us to understand and to walk in the truth as it is revealed to us. But it's also incumbent upon us to, as Peter talks about, to give an answer for the hope that's within us and to also refute those who twist the truth and who spew false doctrine. So we need to be both equipped and prepared to apply the scriptures to our own lives so that we are faithful in the life of the body of Christ as the Lord has placed us. But we also need to be well informed of what the scriptures teach so that we can possibly provide help and direction for those who might be completely twisted up by some of these teachings. And it's not hard to see when you read an article like that how someone could get very twisted up especially if they are suffering from some kind of protracted ailment. So we want to be very expeditious and very careful with, the, with our study. Now, we've been looking at this, uh, these, these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's go ahead and read them together, starting in verse 7, and we'll read down through verse 11. He says, "...to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom." And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish, distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, as we've been discussing this broader study, we have, we have noted that this, the emphasis in this entire section is on the diverse nature of the spiritual gifts and the singular source of spiritual gifts. And so when we arrive at this particular listing of what most would say are nine distinct or discrete gifts that Paul mentions here, we always have to keep in mind that these are, this list is illustrative. It's, it's Paul illustrating the point that, that the gifts have been variously distributed. They have been distributed and are to be used and deployed in a variety of ministry contexts. And as they are uh, apportioned widely amongst the body of Christ to each person, as the Lord sees fit by the Spirit, and as they are used in various ministry contexts, they are going to have a variety of effects. So the varied nature of spiritual gifts in all of those various categories is a big emphasis in this section. But then also, even more prominently probably, is the singular source and really the singular purpose that the the Spirit, the source of the gifts, has. And that is, it's for the common good. It's for, that the gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ. And they are, in fact, given sovereignly by the Spirit. They are not something that you figure out how to do. Gifts are not something that you figure out how to make work. Okay? That, that's, that's, a, that's a very sort of Western 
highly rational kind of mindset when it comes to the nature of spiritual gifts in the life of the body of Christ. We looked briefly, we began to sort of examine the, the, the gifts mentioned in this list. And last time, uh, we began to look at these first two that are listed. Uh, the message or utterance of wisdom, literally the, the logos, the word of wisdom. And then the message or utterance of knowledge. And we talked quite a bit at length about both of those. We, we discussed how... For example, wisdom is this spirit-enabled ability to communicate the deep truths of God's revelation and their implications for believers individually and for the church corporately. These two gifts, the, the utterance or message of wisdom and the utterance or word or message of knowledge, these are gifts that, that are characterized by the speaking elements of them. And of course, we, we sought to try to understand what the Apostle Paul uh, might be referring to here by looking within the letter itself. You may recall, we went back to earlier sections of 1 Corinthians to look at the, the nature of wisdom as it plays out in the life of, the, as it was playing out in the, in the first century church in Corinth, and how the Apostle Paul sought to distance himself from the Corinthians' notion of wisdom and, and really sought to bring to bear a wisdom that was of the Lord, a true spiritual wisdom. So there is a distinction that he lays out even at the beginning of this letter. And what we also noted is that the the wisdom, this gift of wisdom, even if it might have had a certain revelatory element to it, because in the first century, remember the context is first century Corinth, and they're not looking at, you know, they don't have a, a New Testament canon. They don't have Bibles that they're carrying around. I mean, you're still in this period where the Lord is revealing truth that is, is being inscripturated, that's being written down, and it's being circulated amongst the churches and that kind of thing. So you have the, the quite possibly a, an element of revelatory, a revelatory component in which uh, the Lord enabled certain people in the life of the church to understand the depths of the gospel that was being presented, the depths of the redemptive plan, the the progressing redemptive plan of God that was sort of the mystery hidden for all the ages. It's being revealed now to the church, right? I mean, that's the way that the Apostle Paul describes this earlier on in the letter, that there are those who are able to understand that in its depths, but not just understand it in its depths by a a grace gift of the Spirit, but we're able to actually communicate it and sort of effectively propagate those truths. But what we said was that those truths, even though it might have had a character of new revelation given the time and place of it, it was still anchored to the apostles' instruction. It was still anchored to the gospel that was being presented. It was still anchored to this revelation of the work, the redemptive work of Christ that, was, that has, been being, being, has been being played out since Genesis, right? I mean, we're talking about the entire redemptive framework of God's work to save his people. And you, you notice when, the, when Peter preached at Pentecost or when he taught all throughout Acts or when he writes in his letters in First and Second Peter or when you see the Apostle Paul writing to the Gentiles, he is routinely tying together the entire scope of God's redemptive work that goes all the way back to the Old Testament and Genesis and, and the, the exodus of the people of Israel. I mean, there's an entire section uh, previously in 1 Corinthians where you're dealing with these references to Old Testament passages and the redemptive work of God amongst his people that preceded these Gentile believers in Corinth. 
So, so even if it was uh, revelatory because of the time and place of this period of gifting in the life of this first century church, it was still anchored to biblical truth, if you will, to the apostles' teaching. We referenced Acts 2.42 and how that was the character of the church from the beginning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So it only stands to reason that that would be the, the character of this gift of wisdom. And then we tried to kind of differentiate the gift of wisdom from this gift or word or utterance of knowledge, which it's difficult to do. And when you look at all the different commentators on, on this particular section of Scripture, you find that there's a lot of sort of you know, uh, overlap in the way that they sort of describe these gifts. And sometimes it sounds like you're reading from one commentator and they're trying to describe what this gift of wisdom really is or really was in the first century context. And you'll read another commentator, and they're describing what this gift of knowledge really was or looked like in the first century context, but it sounds very much like the other commentator's description of the gift of wisdom. So you have that kind of uh, sort of, I don't know, overlap or, or synergy or something going on here that's really hard to distinguish. And as we said before, this is an illustrative list. The Apostle Paul doesn't elaborate. In fact, Gordon Fee uses the term ad hoc to describe this list. This is just the Apostle Paul sort of, you know, sort of recounting certain uh, gifts that either were manifest in the church at Corinth, or some would argue were being promoted, were being sort of self-promoted by the Corinthians, and he's referencing them as a point of uh, tactile connection so that he can then correct their doctrine around them. So it's, it's hard to say with any definitiveness because we only have what we have in the text. But nevertheless, this gift of knowledge, the way that as I kind of tried to understand it and, and, and kind of expand my, my view of this as I looked, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to see how the Apostle Paul dealt with this matter of knowledge with the Corinthians prior to getting to this point, the way I kind of define knowledge is it's a spirit-enabled ability to both accurately understand and clearly communicate the full counsel of God contained in his revealed word. Now, the way I kind of arrived at that kind of definition, as, as feeble as it might be, is it was, a, it was sort of tied to a reference from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, which is a section in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with this matter of food being sacrificed to idols and the contention that was, was uh, resulting was was, uh, propagated in the life of the church as a result of some of the believers in Corinth not having true spiritual knowledge, though they had a knowledge that there is no, you know, an idol is nothing. So eating food sacrificed to idols really means nothing. But those believers that were doing that and were actually priding themselves in their knowledge to recognize that it didn't matter if they ate food sacrificed to idols because an idol is nothing, that they were completely ignoring the sensitive consciences of other believers and they were provoking their consciences and potentially by their actions based upon their quote-unquote knowledge, which was accurate, they were potentially causing a, a weaker brother to stumble in the life of the church. And the Apostle Paul concludes that whole section by saying, if, if eating food sacrificed to idols causes a brother to stumble, I won't eat meat at all, even though it would be my right to do so. And so the, the whole instruction is that, that understanding and then being able to articulate the full counsel of God would entail not just being able to say, I know that an idol is nothing, 
And so therefore, eating food sacrificed to idols is nothing. It's not like the food is going to somehow get into me and corrupt me and corrupt my character or my standing before God. I know that to be true. It also entails, I also know I have responsibility to support and uphold and and instruct and disciple and counsel and set an example for the rest of the body. And my primary way of doing that is to be a servant and to sacrifice my rights in doing so. So that's, that's kind of how I drew out from that particular section in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 an understanding of what this, this word of knowledge or this under, uh, utterance of knowledge might be. Again, there could be a revelatory component associated with that because of the time and place. But it seems to be tied back to this misunderstanding of knowledge the Corinthians had, a knowledge that the Apostle Paul said puffs up, but love builds up. And you'll, we'll see him kind of revisit that, obviously, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where there's this knowledge that puffs up without love. So knowledge is related also to sort of our temporal apprehension of revelation, our, our understanding of what God has revealed in time and, time and space. And we, we reference 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 9, to just kind of, kind of lock in on the fact that, that the gift of knowledge, whatever it might be, is temporal in nature. It's a temporal knowledge gift. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 9, He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will will be passed away. So we're even talking about in this spiritually spiritually enabled gift of knowledge, that it has something to do with the apprehension of knowledge in, in temporal space and time, of eternal and transcendent things, but nonetheless, it is partial. It it is not some kind of knowledge that is complete, in other words. It is still incomplete and will only be complete when we know as we are fully known. So, we want to move forward now into the next gift that's listed there in verse 9, this gift of faith. He says, to another, faith by the same Spirit. As He's just rattling off these these uh, illustrative gifts here, he comes in the first part of verse 9 to what he describes as faith, as a spiritual gift. Now, this term is obviously, it's a familiar term in Scripture. It's, it's, in fact, the, the, the Greek word for faith is used 243 times in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, 241 of the uses in, in all 241 of those uses, it's translated faith. There's no sort of like, well, in that case it's translated this, and in that case it's translated that. So in almost every instance of this word in the Greek New Testament, it is translated faith. And the only other two times where it's found in the New Testament, one time it's translated belief, and the other time it's translated assurance, in the ESV, I should say. So it's, core, it's related to this principle of faith. So clearly, faith looms large in the Scriptures, and in particular in the New Testament. And its essential meaning doesn't vary widely. It's it's pretty straightforward and pretty clear, and there's not a lot of nuance that you'll find when this matter or this term of faith is used throughout the New Testament. Gospels, epistles, and and, and otherwise. 
So it looms large, it doesn't vary widely. But what often does vary widely when we see faith being mentioned or discussed in the New Testament is the reference to the degree of faith being exhibited or demonstrated. And sometimes what varies is the object of faith in which, it, in which that faith is placed. What is the object that the faith is being placed in? There might be some variant there that's highlighted. But mostly in the New Testament, the only thing that varies is not some nuanced understanding of faith and what it is or what it means or the importance of it, but really just highlighting degrees of faith. You of little faith, for example, would be you know, a little catchphrase to, to help you understand what I'm trying to say there. Let me give you two sort of examples of this. As it relates to a, a variance in the object of one's faith, you find this in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. And this is the a familiar account where the disciples are in the boat uh, with Jesus and a storm comes. And it says in Luke 8, chapter 22 and following, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, they fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling the water uh, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they, and they ceased and there was calm. And then listen to what Jesus says, verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? This is a scenario in which you probably have both things happening simultaneously where the disciples had little faith in Jesus, but maybe more prominently, they had their faith, their faith placed on the wrong objects. I mean, you, you have to remember, these, uh, several of these men were very experienced sailors, and they knew how to navigate rough waters. And I'm quite certain that they got into a boat like that on a familiar body of water, and they probably felt very confident in their ability to navigate whatever may come. And so when this storm comes and they begin to realize it's surpassing their ability, suddenly the object of their faith, the misplaced object of their faith, faith in themselves, maybe faith in their ability, whatever it might be, faith in their ability to judge or forecast what the conditions might be if they went out onto the water. Jesus says, where's your faith? Because they had already been with him and seen him do mighty works. And it was as though Jesus wasn't in the boat with them at all. So you have this this one variation where it's about a variation in the object of one's faith. But more prominently in the New Testament, you have this variation in degree of faith. And so you see a great example of that. There are many, many, many of these. But one good example is found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 10. It says, when he, Jesus, entered, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So this is an example of Jesus recognizing the degree or magnitude of this particular centurion's faith. Complete confidence and trust and faith that all the Lord had to do was say the word. He didn't have to go there. There's no need for any kind of special ceremony. All it would take for him would be for him to say the word and his servant would be healed. And so Jesus is commending such magnanimous faith. And then you have, obviously, in the New Testament, this element of essential faith, or we might refer to it as saving faith. Of course, in Hebrews, you see this in Hebrews chapter 11, this kind of the straightforward, you might say, definition of faith in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he goes on to sort of illustrate it, for by it, the people of old received their commendation by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And he goes on to talk about the faith of Abel and, and others in sort of the, what's called the hall of faith, if you will. And then you get down to verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This would be an essential faith. This would be a saving faith. Peter, I think, illustrates this really, really uh, clearly and, and powerfully in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, this is just a, a sort of the doctrine of salvation, just laid out there as clearly as you could put it. In verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is essential saving faith. Faith is a present and hopeful confidence in the certainty of future realities that is rooted in the proven reliability of a trusted source. Let me say that again. Faith is a present, hopeful confidence in the certainty of future realities that is rooted in the proven reliability of a trusted source. That's very different than some of the definitions of faith that you might hear from secular people, which is just sort of like, you know, we're just casting ourselves on some kind of whim of faith. No, it's, it's confidence. It's confidence and certainty about future realities. Not, by, not because we conjured something up, but because our faith is rooted in proven reliability. The reliability of God and his revelation of himself, his revelation of his, his son, and the testimony of faithful people. 
who, who speak of his work and his redemption and his purposes and plans coming out of his word. In other words, we have complete confidence, but there is a hopeful trust and confidence in future realities. And if you think about this, one of the, you know, maybe the, I don't know, think, go back to maybe your youth group days where, you know, you're trying to illustrate to young people what faith is, and, you know, you put a chair there, and you say, look, go back your way into this chair and sit down, and, and you know, you sit down in the chair, and you have confidence. You don't think about, well, let me turn it over and see who made this chair. Let me kind of see what, uh, how these things are screwed in. Is everything locked tight on the hinges? And I mean, we don't do that. We just sit down in the chair. And, but we don't know, technically, at that moment, that that chair is not faulty, that something might be wrong with that chair, because we have hope, quote-unquote, and confidence, because time and time again, we've sat in these similar chairs, and we've sat down, and everything's been fine. But we're banking on that happening this next time in a future that we don't know, even though it's an instantaneous future that we don't know. I mean, we're going to know within about five seconds, right? But we don't know the moment we sort of engage our, our muscles and our joints to begin the seeding process. It's that kind, of, that kind of certainty, but much more substantial than the notion of sitting in a chair. There is this future hope and trust and confidence, this future reality assurance that is in view with saving faith. Of course, we know this. We know that essential faith or saving faith is also a gift. So we arrive here at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he's listing out or illustrating these gifts of the Spirit, and he enumerates this gift of faith. But what we know also about essential saving faith is that it is a gift that is given to every believer. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is probably a clear example of that or illustration of that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when we arrive at this principle of faith, we're talking about a ubiquitous term in the New Testament. With very little variation in its meaning or its point or its purpose. And we're also talking about something that is essential for both the salvation of the believer... But it's also essential in our everyday walk. We are working out our faith. We are operating in faith all the time. There's a, there's a real-time, present-tense uh, demonstration or employment of faith all the time on the part of the believer. Now, when we come to this gift of faith, it's, it's got to be something more distinct than that, though. This gift of faith to which Paul is referring in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is distinctive in that it is given by the Spirit to some, but not necessarily to all believers. He says to another. So in in that same sort of uh, locution, that same sort of verbiage, you know, he's just saying to one is given and then to another and to another. He says and to another faith. And we already know from his introduction that he's largely speaking to believers who obviously have been given saving faith and have been redeemed and are in Christ. They're referred to as saints. We've talked about that before in that introduc- those introductory remarks in chapter 1. So obviously, most of the people we have to, have to assume that he's speaking to 
have received the gift of essential or saving faith. But now he's talking about something that seems to be distinctive to another faith, he says. So let me try to put a a working definition around this gift based upon all that I've I've kind of tried to to lay out for us. This unique gift of faith is a spirit-enabled trust and confidence in God to work in ways that are beyond human capability or expectation. In some way, the Lord, by His Spirit, sovereignly, gives to certain believers a capacity to exercise or exhibit or demonstrate a measure of faith that is beyond saving faith, and it's beyond day-to-day operating faith that we live out and flesh out in our walk with the Lord and our identity in Christ. It's some measure of faith, some measure of confidence and trust in the work of God in ways that are beyond human capability or expectation. And I would argue that because of the nature of faith itself, it is banking on confidence in future realities as well. Same kind of principle. Now, many scholars would see this gift of faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as directly tied to the gifts of healing and working of miracles that you see following in verses 9 and 10. Partly due to the, just the flow of the text within the passage, but more specifically because they tie it back to, or tie it ahead, I should say, to what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, where he says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So many scholars will say, this is the Apostle Paul sort of tying together this extra measure of spirit-enabled, spirit-gifted faith that is exhibited, and in particular, it's exhibited in miraculous gifts and in healing gifts. They would, they would sort of wrap all this up as sort of a bit of a, of a bundle. I don't want to mischaracterize what some of the scholars say, but that's generally how they see it. They see these things sort of tied together, particularly this gift of faith. Now, I'll just say that I, I don't see it that way. I, I don't see that as, as necessary. I don't see it as, as compelling. I, in other words, I don't think that the flow of the text in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10... Uh, compels us to such a conclusion just by virtue of what the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit has written there. Um, But it is clear that this gift of faith is of a unique kind and depth and magnitude that extends beyond saving faith and sort of that sort of everyday faith that, that I was mentioning before that believers live by. Now, let's think about this maybe a little more particularly one, one example of this, or one way to maybe think about this, I think is, is captured well by uh, John MacArthur in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says this, he says, The sovereign, spirit-given faith obviously is distinct from saving faith or the daily faith by which every believer lives. This category of giftedness is limited to certain Christians and has to do with an intensive ability to trust God in difficult and demanding ways. 
It is the ability to trust him in the face of overwhelming obstacles and human impossibilities. Now, when you think about this in light of the introductory article that I read, that, that is where some of, this, some of this instruction, this sort of faith healing, uh, claim your healing kind of doctrine and teaching can be confusing uh, for many, many, many people. Because there is a measure of faith that it's faith that is, it is given by the Spirit of God and it's demonstrable in some ways in the face of circumstances, a trial, something that is humanly beyond our capacity to know how this is going to play out or, or, or what the resolution is going to be or how we're going to escape this severe thing or, or whatever it might be. There is an element where it's like that's something that only a measure, an extra measure of faith will, will carry someone through. So, so I think that when you come to these instructions or these teachings that talk about, really, it, it, in some ways, it places this, these, these senses of inadequacy and even spiritual inadequacy on people because oftentimes people are made to feel like they just haven't conjured up or worked up enough faith. So you have in the New Testament, you have very clearly many, many passages that speak of this varying degrees of faith. And so false teachers will come along and say, you just need to conjure up, muster up more faith so that you can claim what is already yours. Namely, because of Christ taking our wounds, you are healed. The reason why you are not experiencing that in real time is because you haven't read the second part of the article, maybe one example. You know, you haven't, you haven't followed the sort of the, 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 the magic instructions or whatever. But more, more damaging, I think, to otherwise faithful believers and, and even more just egregious and, and grieving is actually hurting, ailing believers, despairing believers. It, it, it instills in them a, a certain compounding sense of inadequacy because they don't have enough faith. And then that that promotes the question, well, why on earth would you not have faith in God to heal you? I mean, we're talking about God. He can do anything, right? I mean, you see how these, these messages can just be so damaging. The Apostle Paul here is talking about some kind of unique measure of faith. But listen, we have to come back to, and we will get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as it just kind of lays this thing out in, in a major way to, to balance our thinking properly. But we have to recognize that there is, there is meaningful purpose in this gift of faith that is not tied to demonstration of some kind of miraculous power that is often couched in a way that it just benefits the recipient. It's just a special bonus for the recipient. And I think that the Apostle Paul, in a very rather mundane way, I don't want to use the term mundane too broadly, because what the Apostle Paul went through was in no way mundane, but for him, in some ways it was. 
the degree and extent and type of suffering and trial that we see recounted in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul and others with him endured for the sake of the gospel are of an extreme nature and degree and are repeated. So pack up shop here, run out of town there, go to the next place with every expectation that the same kind of thing can happen. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is what the Apostle Paul exhibited to Timothy, encouraging him to remain confident and faithful even when suffering for the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I'm kind of clipping off the first part of that, just knowing that there's broader context, but just, just work with me on this. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know who I am, whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That is faith. That is the Apostle Paul exhibiting a measure of faith Complete confidence in hope in something that he is not assured of right now. Like the realities of how he is going to be delivered from the suffering that he is enduring at this particular time is not clear. It's future. Whatever it is. Even if you move forward in the, the, um, the biography of the Apostle Paul all the way to Rome and his martyrdom. You know that the Apostle Paul saw that as deliverance, right? For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he doesn't know at this point, as he's writing to Timothy, he does not know at this point what the nature or, or type or manner of, of the, the other side of this suffering is going to look like. What, what God's faithfulness and God's faithful work and faithful deliverance is going to look like. What shape it's going to take. He doesn't know that. He just knows in whom he's believed and is convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to him. Now, the key here in my estimation to all of this is this was explicitly to encourage Timothy, whose faith as we know, at different times, wavered. His, his, he needed to be encouraged. He needed to have encouragement to fan the flame, the gift that's within you. And he, th- that's what the Apostle Paul does with Timothy multiple times in his letters to him. But here you have the Apostle Paul characterizing this encouragement in the frame of faith, of 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 an extreme and unique and poignant type. And like every other gift, regardless of what it is, it is given for the common good. And this is what you see the Apostle Paul demonstrating here for Timothy. The Apostle Paul is not articulating something here. He's articulating a a, a measure of unique spirit-enabled faith here confidence and trust in the Lord's 
and the Lord's proven interest in supplying and providing for his future deliverance and his future needs. He's not exhibiting that or conveying that so that we would all look at him and say, wow, look at Paul, he's amazing. Look at that gift of faith. See, it resulted in someone getting healed or a miracle happening. It was for the common good. It was for the building up of Timothy. And so when I think about this gift of faith and how it gets linked up with these more um, um, sign gift kinds of manifestations that the Apostle Paul raises here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that I promise we're going to deal with. We're, not, we're, we're going to get into that next time. But when we see those things sort of raised up and we see sort of some of the common um, motivations and excesses of them in our day and time and even when we might look into the recesses of our own hearts and, and think about our view, as we've talked about in past weeks, our own view of spiritual giftedness and, and how we need to be thinking about spiritual gifts, our own gifts, and, and how they're to be used and deployed to build up the body of Christ, we have to constantly battle against any kind of self-referential motivation for our gifts and how they're used and what the ministry context in which they're used might be. Because they're not for us. They're not created or cultivated or conjured up by us. And they haven't been given to us for us. They have been given sovereignly, graciously by the Spirit of God for the common good. For the building up of the body of Christ to the glory of God. And so I I see this, this... sort of constant thread or theme of correction that the Apostle Paul is engaging in in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a far stretch to say that this is a corrective as well. That there are those, again, remember, the way that the letter starts is, is the Corinthians being characterized as those that say, I'm on this team. Not I'm on this team just alone, but I'm on the right team. I'm going to name, I'm going to name my team. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. I, I'm, I'm calling it out. Look at me. Notice how wise I am. Notice the right choice that I made over against the choices that all of you other yahoos have made. You haven't even lined up with the right leader. That kind of attitude, that kind of self-referential arrogance and pride and the lack of love that was being exhibited in Corinth was on display over and over again as we've gone through these chapters. And so it stands to reason that even as we think about this sort of this ad hoc list of gifts, that that would come to play in this gift of faith as well. Now, it's not inconceivable that someone would be exhibiting this unique gift of faith and that the Lord might uh, enable them to work some kind of miracle or or some kind of healing. I'm not saying that that's not the case that was, could have been happening in Corinth. And we certainly will be looking at other places in the New Testament where these things are happening. But all I'm saying is that the nature of the correction here is, is that it's, a, it's for the common good, this faith. It's to build up the body. And I really love what John MacArthur says about this as he continues on to sort of illustrate this in very tangible kinds of ways. He says, On the basis of one person's strong faith, 
Others are always helped and served. Through the history of the church, thousands of saints with gifts of faith have believed God in the face of great danger and often death. And in exercising their faith, have strengthened the faith of their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Hudson Taylor believed God would win many Chinese converts through him, and without any money or support, refusing to ask for a penny of help, he began what became the great and fruitful China Inland Mission. George Mueller, solely through trusting God in prayer, continually saw him provide for his orphanage in miraculous ways. Countless missionaries have claimed tribes or nations for the Lord, and evangelists have claimed cities for the Lord and seen seen him faithfully respond to their faith. Their prayers are answered, and their faith itself is strengthened and multiplied. Now, I just ask you, if and when you find yourself in the company of someone who is demonstrating a profound measure of complete confidence and trust in the Lord, in the face of utter and complete uncertainty ahead of them. What what is really standing before them, no one knows the outcome of the situation, the trial, whatever it might be. But this beloved brother or sister is exhibiting not some kind of incantation, I trust the Lord, I trust the Lord. It's, it's a level of peace and certainty and demonstrated faith and confidence in the Lord and His certain provision and His certain care. When you and I find ourselves in the company of brothers and sisters like that, I ask you, does that build you up? Does that prompt you to want to trust the Lord more? Does that give you greater hope and confidence in the trials that you're facing? Or are we going to go to a place where this gift of faith is some kind of exhibition, showy exhibition of, you know, you have to, there has to be some miracle or someone has to rise up and walk off of a mat being crippled all their life or something like that. That's the gift of faith. You're talking about the building up of the body of Christ, not the hyping up in a moment. And the fact of the matter is, is that the story of life in a fallen world is a story for everyone of routine trial and suffering and physical decay. That's our lot. And yet, in the face of all that, we are called to be people who are bright lights in a dark world, who carry the hope of the gospel, and who exhibit measures of faith that indicate that we know God, we know Him well, and He is trustworthy. He has proven Himself trustworthy. And so whatever we're facing, and whatever comes... We know in whom we believed, and we know he's able. So I would encourage all of us to consider how the Lord might be testing and challenging your faith and how those around you who might actually have this 
special gift of faith can provide particular encouragement and inspiration and be an example for us as we walk in faith and use the gifts that God's given us to build up the body. Well, let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed.